for, for those of you here for the first time or, or uh, who haven't been part of the series that we're doing, we're doing a very serious series uh, on, on sort of on end times. Um, it's called the Great Apostasy because Scripture predicts that in the last days there will be a great falling away of God's people from sound doctrine and good practice from churches. And it's something we should all be aware of. Over the last eight weeks or so, I've been bombarded by questions from you. Um, one of the most recurring questions to come up was this. What happens when we die? What exactly happens when we die? Where does my body go? Where is my lost great-grandmother? What happens to people? I want to know. And as we have looked at the seriousness of, of really the, the hour and the day in which we live, I, I guess that's an obvious thing that, that, that would come to anybody's mind. Um, let me ask John Cowan to bring this in for me this morning. I, I read this years ago and I've never forgotten it. Listen to this. But <laughs> Let's assume that the average person dies at 70 years of age. That means if you are 20 years old today, you have... 2,500 weekends left to live. That means if you're 30 years old, you have 2,000 weekends left. It means if you're 40 years old, shall I stop now? <laughs> if you're 40 years old, it doesn't get better. You have 1,500 weekends left to live. If you're 50 years old, you have 1,000. Jeanette, we've got 1,000 weekends. <laughs> If you're 60 years old, you have 500 weekends left to live. And if you're 70, you should be dead. You shouldn't be here. Oh, you shouldn't. That's what it says. It's just an average. Isn't that shocking? Isn't that absolutely shocking? What am I doing with my time? You don't get two bits of time, you know. You just get one life, one shot at this. That's it. One. Only one. So, Jeanette... Kid, we got 1,000, 1,000 weekends, 999 next week, right? Oh, really is scary. So I, I, as we've been looking at this, we've focused on the first one, the things the scripture says about the return of Christ. It said, you know, be aware of this. The return of Christ will not happen until the Antichrist appears. And there's a great falling away. So we spent like seven weeks on that. These next three, these are the four contingent parts of eschatology. If you want to really crush it down in the department sections, this would be it. Okay, these would be the big four. And everything is contained within them. However, these last three, judgment, heaven, and hell, they kind of go together because they, they're interrelated so heavily that you can't really separate them. Um, they're also some of the most unpopular things that I could ever speak about. Some of you can attend church all your life and you will never hear a message on hell. True? Absolutely true. That's crazy. That's absolute madness. Our bass player today, Dr. Chris Quay, is, is a medical doctor. Good parts to that job. Some parts that are not so good. Chris, I guess you have to accept the fact that now and again you have to go into a room and you have to deliver some bad news, huh? He's nodding his head. 
not the happiest part of your job, is it? But you wouldn't be much of a doctor if you didn't accept that. You accept that. that that's life. And, and so are these teachings. So don't shoot the doctor. Don't shoot the messenger. This is part and parcel of a loving God's you know, cry to you about judgment, heaven, and hell. We like to hear about the heaven bit, <laughs> but sandwiched in there is heaven, yes. But judgment, heaven, and hell go together. There th there's three truths here that cannot be avoided. 162 references to hell in the New Testament, 70 of which came from Jesus alone. And just as a reminder, folks, Scripture makes it very clear that hell was never intended as a place for human beings. People were never intended to go there. It's a place for demons, for demonic spirits, fallen angels, not for people. And this is an even greater tragedy. But because of what happened in Eden, as you know, people end up following Satan, have been duped, and they end up in hell. But we shouldn't be there. We travel, myself and my wife travel a lot. I don't like, I'm not a tourist, I don't go sightseeing. I've got very little interest in that kind of thing. But I'm fascinated by the Second World War. And I've studied that a bit. And when we had our first trip to Hungary and to Budapest, I knew that the, the, the center of power for the communists, for the Russians, for the Nazis, for many different parties, there was a building there in a place called Andrasi Street. That, that had been such an historical building. I don't know if you saw Michael Palin's tour of Europe. He, he put that as one of his highlights. So I always thought, even though we don't go and see sites, if I ever go to Budapest, I'm going to go and see that building. We ended up there about four years ago. And I said to Jeanette, let's go and see the, the center of power. When I got there, it's, they actually called it the House of Horror. I didn't realize that. It was a place where... Tens of thousands of people met their death. Jews, um, political activists, anybody who disagreed with the various regimes. And now, today, it's a museum to teach against that sort of thing. But this is what I was not prepared for. I took Jeanette in the front door. We walked in, and they give you an experience. It's not an experience you want, I tell you go inside and they put you in a glass lift it's all glass and you stand there and then the lights went out and you could see I thought what's going on and then this low music starts and the lift very slowly starts to descend and you look down and there's the torture chambers and stuff down there. you think oh lord I wish I hadn't come to this place now it was hard I tell you it was horrible absolutely horrible and we started to descend and the voiceover comes on in the lift you are descending as tens of thousands of people did but they never returned and you know folks I, I could cry because at that moment I turned and I looked at my dear wife and one thought was in my head I'm sorry I brought you here you don't belong here I want to get you out of this building as fast as I can. And when that lift reached the bottom, I said, let's just go. And we went through that thing straight up and out. I got out into the street and I thought, wow, we don't belong in this place. It's a horrible feeling. And, and, and scripture describes hell like that. 
Hell exists because of the other one there, judgment. And judgment exists because of sin. And sin exists because men keep on lowering. Like we sang this morning, how awesome is our God. I stand in awe of you. But we don't. We lower him all the time. We make him small, not big. And whenever people make God small, he's losing his awesomeness. He's losing his true dignity, his true power. Who's powerful here? Who's in charge here? Who rules here? For those of you listening online, this is a picture of Madonna and child of of Mary holding Jesus. Mary's the most blessed woman who ever walked the face of the earth. But images like this, uh, they're, they're very deceptive in my opinion because they make us subliminally, subliminally even decrease our awe of Christ and see Him as maybe something to be cared for and pitied when I'm afraid Jesus is not in the arms of Mary. Friend, Jesus is, is part of the Godhead. He's God the Son. The Son of God? Yeah. But He's God the Son as well. And don't forget it. And so when men lower God, this leads to sin in all its forms, which leads to judgment, which ultimately leads to hell. Now, this is a very old story. Look at Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. There are many judgments you could look at in the Old Testament, but look at this one. This was the judgment of speech when God invented the different languages because men were getting cocky and uh, he had to cut them down to size, as it were, the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. They said to each other, Come, let make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. They said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them. You know the story. Next slide, please. The famous Tower of Babel. We don't know what the Tower of Babel looked like. No one does. However, this is one of the most famous representations by, in the 1600s by an artist called Bruegel off the Tower of Babel. And it has become kind of the standard image, if you like, in, in, in modern centuries of Babel. And when people refer to it, you will very, very often see this structure. Now, one, one of the things I want you to go home with today is that Europe is in, in my opinion, the crosshairs, the, the bullseye of the judgments that are going to come on the earth. Okay? Because I believe the Antichrist will make himself known within Europe. I believe the false prophet will rise up within Europe Which is why across the European churches, you will find a very keen understanding of end times things. Because it is pertinent to us, God has not hidden it from us. But we need to keep pace with it. So in the 1970s, the European Union moved out of what was called the EEC. 
there's all different levels within the European Union, the EMU and all the rest of it. But they, they, they began to formalize their political power and structure. And the leaders of the nations in Europe, they said to themselves, a bit like we just read in Genesis, they said to themselves, let's build ourselves a center. Let's build ourselves a center of power in Europe. Let's make a name for ourselves. Next slide, please. So they did. They built this one in Strasbourg, in France. Do you see any similarities here? <laughs> yeah. Can you believe it? Can you believe it that they actually designed, they had many options to choose from, but they chose a replica of the Tower of Babel. Now, if that is not prophetic and, and a warning, then I, I really you know, don't know what is. This is the Strasbourg variation on a theme, as you'll see in a moment. It's not just that. Next one, please. Of course, the languages are still a problem. But as time has gone by, we've got you know, more clever, and they've begun to not only build their tower again, now they've also solved the language bit again. And things are really moving at a pace. I say this, I hope you understand. When people did this the first time, what did God do? Judgment. He brought a judgment upon them. And now they do it again. It's getting close to the judgment. That's all. Next slide, please. This, many of you will probably be been here. This is the entrance to the uh, parliament in Brussels. If you turn to Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1, one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many, by, by many waters with her kings, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous, na blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. And on and on it goes, and it starts to describe what it calls Babylon the Great. Can you imagine, folks, here we are in Brussels here, which is the seat of the European Parliament, and they needed some sort of an edifice, some sort of a sculpture to go outside the European Parliament. What do they choose? A woman riding on a beast. They copy the very you know, depiction in, in the book of Revelation. Now, if, once again, if, if that's not prophetic... I don't know what is. It's, it's amazing. Justice, where do you live? In town. I live just outside town. We all live somewhere. When Jesus was on earth, where did he live? Nazareth. Bethlehem. When Satan was on earth, where did he live? Jesus, the reason we worship Jesus, remember folks, the reason the focus is because Jesus confined himself to a body. There's a Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But Jesus stepped down from glory, right? Took on, in, became incarnate, and forever, forever, for all eternity, is contained in that body, okay? That's why the focus of worship is on the Lord Jesus Christ because of his eternal sacrifice. But it wasn't only that. When he was on earth, it also confined Jesus to a place where he lived, okay? 
But it wasn't just Jesus, it was also the devil. And if you look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, it tells us where Satan had his base on earth in the time of Jesus. Revelation chapter 2 verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And Jesus was, was basically, I'm very glad that scripture is in there. Next slide, please. This is it, by the way, folks. This is from Babylon, from what we call Iraq today. And this is the throne that Jesus was referring to. Okay? This was known as the seat of Satan. And as you'll see in a moment, the entrance to this throne was known as the gates of hell. But Christians, many of your forefathers, their blood flowed down these steps, right? As, as this was a place of Christian martyrdom and many types of martyrdom, but Christian martyrdom. This is the seat of Satan that Jesus was referring to. It was in Iraq. Where is it today? Berlin. Europe. They moved it. They moved it. And just as Jesus has his center of authority or power in Israel, and he says he will come back to take his throne, and he will for a thousand years, so Satan has sought to establish his center of power on the earth, but it shifted, and it shifted to Berlin. Interesting, isn't it? Next slide, please. These were the entrance. To the, these were known historically. These are also from Babylon. There's the seat of Satan inside. And these were known, actually, as the gates of hell, believe it or not. <laughs> And they were in Babylon. And in 1902, what was his name, Stephen? Wilhelm, Wilhelm, Kaiser Wilhelm. He decided, what a terrible move. He decided to deconstruct the gates of hell, to deconstruct the seat of Satan, and to move them into Germany. Now, what happened in Germany from that point on? Oh, Lord. Nothing but chaos, mayhem. So... You understand, folks, I, I take judgment very personally. I take it as a very personal responsibility. So as I said about Dr. Chris at the beginning, it, it, he has the responsibility to fulfill every aspect of his job. Well, I'm a Christian, and I have the responsibility to tell people about every part of the gospel. Amen. Amen. And so have you. So have you. You also have this responsibility. Do not avoid it. Because that's just crazy. There, there are two appointments in life, as we heard at the beginning there with those statistics. There's two appointments in life that no person can avoid. And really, we don't know the dates of. One is the day that you're born. God has made it so that you know your birthday. But he hasn't given you a death day. Okay, you don't know that yet. There's two appointments that none of us can avoid. And yet, none of us know when they will be. The first is when you die, and, and the second is when you will be judged. And the part, half the problem in the world is a, a decrease in the fear of God, in respect for God, and that the, the, they tell us that there's a decreasing fear of death, you know. People are not as frightened of death as they used to be. Some of the drug addicts in Dublin, when they were facing a court case, some of them would kill themselves two days before because they were frightened of facing Judge Hussey or whatever. Oh, Lord. Talk about a wonky perspective. Imagine being frightened of a human being. 
and killing yourself only to face the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. How narrow-minded is that? How, how crazy is that? Next slide, please. A, a principal question for me and for you, I would presume, is why does judgment have to happen in the first place? Well, I would say that injustice demands it. Life is not fair. And I can understand, you know, kids when they say this is not fair and that's not fair. Okay. But once you get to like 15 or so, you should understand that life is not fair, right? Life's not fair. And if you're still complaining about life not being fair, you know, in your adulthood, then you really need to have a, a rethink here, guys, because life is not fair. You can't live like that. It'll only lead you to self-pity. However, the injustices of life, which are many, will one day be brought into balance. So why is there a judgment day? I would say because injustices generally demand it. I would say because God's own justice demands it. He is a righteous God. And I would say because justice has to be seen. Just like in any courtroom in this land and in most countries of the world, you can go into those courtrooms and you can sit there because it's, it's of great importance to any nation that justice is not just done, but that justice is seen to be done. And God, this is ultimately about the vindication of God, by the way. God will be vindicated on this judgment day. Remember, the two big uh, uh, prophetic elements within Scripture are the return of Christ and judgment. These are the two things that God wants you to be categorically concrete, sure, are going to take place. He says it over and over and over again. Be sure of these two things. I'm coming back, and I'm coming back to judge. That's a good question. Who is the judge? Not God in a general sense. Not God the Father. Not God the Holy Spirit. But the judge is very clearly defined in Scripture as the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who will judge you. Also, what will he judge? Scripture again tells you. He will judge you on the actions you did whilst in the body. You will be judged on your actions on earth. You'll be judged on every word that you spoke, Scripture says. But more than this, and this is where Christianity is in a, a league of its own, we'll be judged even on our thoughts. Remember, Christ took the thought for the deed, which no other faith on the earth does. So when Jesus judges humanity, which he will certainly do, what, see when you stand up there, what judgment will be placed on you? Will you be innocent, guilty, or acquitted? Another term. Well, in terms of innocent, Isaiah makes it very clear that there is no not one. Not one person, not one of you is innocent. We are all guilty. No one will stand before the throne of God. No one will stand before Jesus and say, it doesn't apply to me. Every single person is secondly guilty. Everyone without exception. So we, we need to be clear. Look at Matthew chapter 13, uh, uh, 12. Matthew chapter 12 verse 37 for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. By your words you will be acquitted. And this word acquitted 
is it, it, it applies in a courtroom whenever something else has happened. If someone has committed a crime and they're standing in the dock and they're guilty, okay, something else needs to happen. Maybe the court doesn't have enough evidence so they can't say definitively whether they're innocent or guilty so the person can be acquitted even though they're guilty. So something else needs to happen for you to be acquitted. In our case, those of you who are born again, what is it? Jesus died a death for you. He was raised for you. And by your words, last Sunday when we baptized those nine people, that's why before I baptized them, what did I do? Ask them to speak out loud and to speak those words. Have you repented of your sin? Have you put your faith? Because by your words, you will be either acquitted or you will be condemned. Sadly, other people say, I don't believe in God. And they reject Him and they reject His solution in salvation. So these are the verdicts and they are the only verdicts. We will either be guilty and suffer the consequences or if we turn to the grace of God, we can be acquitted. In fact, that can happen you know, today for you. You give your life to Christ. Next slide, please. Many of you have been asking me about the, the human body and the soul and the spirit. So let me try and explain it in as succinct and, and, and concise a way as I possibly can. But this is interesting to know, also beneficial to know in terms of understanding the world that we live in and the lost people, as well as ourselves, understanding people. There are three phases of incarnation for me and for you. The first phase is when I'm born. I'm born a baby, I've got a body, a soul, but my spirit is dead. That means towards God. It means I don't relate to God as such, okay? The second phase for me, because I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, I hope, is when I'm born again. Now I have a body and a soul, but my spirit has come alive. God has put his life in me, and now I'm alive towards God. I just call your attention to the first stage here. When a person is born, they have a body, a soul, and that means that they can love people, means that they can laugh. It just means that they're dead towards God. That's all. So they walk up and down the street, and the spirit within them is dead towards God. But in every other way, they look normal, behave normal. But second point, when someone becomes born again, they're still in the same body here, and still got the soul, but we now have a living spirit, which is a new creation that God puts within us. Now thirdly, when a Christian dies, the Bible's crystal clear, their body goes into the ground, and their spirit and soul, because they really become one, I'll explain that in a moment, they go to paradise, not heaven, a different place. They go to paradise, and there they await the rapture of the church, when they will receive indeed a new body, an eternal body. That's a Christian. I'll explain this more fully in a moment. When the lost die, they go to a place called Sheol, which is the realm. It's a Jewish word. It's a Hebrew word. It's the realm of departed spirits. And there they will await a different judgment. 
what the book of Revelation describes as the great white throne judgment. Next slide, please. This is a graphical representation of the same thought. So the Apostle Paul said, a very useful quote from Paul, he said, I know a man who was taken up into the third heaven. He was talking to people who understood this concept that as I like to stick just within Scripture, and if Paul said third heaven, let's just leave it at that. Some people talk about seventh heaven also. Let's just stick with what the Bible says. Don't add anything. Don't subtract anything, okay? The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Let's take it from Scripture that there are three levels of heaven. Paul says, I know a man who was on earth uh, first, second, third. Three levels of heaven. Paul says, I know a man who was on earth and was taken up and had an experience, and God spoke things and whispered things to him, secrets that he was not allowed to utter when he returned. Not surprised, because Paul was whipped five times to within an inch of his life. Sixteen books of your New Testament came from Paul. He's an exceptional individual, so no wonder God really pulled him to himself. The third heaven where God dwells, there's no one there today, no human beings there today. I'll explain why in a moment. But Paradise is a completely different concept. Within the Eastern world to which Jesus was speaking, they understood this. When there was an emperor or Nero or whatever, they used to live in a temple or a palace that was their home. And outside that palace, there was a garden, normally a piece of land, extensive land. It was the place where the people who served him lived. And then there was a wall. So if you can imagine a circle within a circle, the palace is inside. There's gardens then and a home for those who belong to the king. And then outside that are the infidels, if you like. That garden area is called paradise. Paradise. It was known in these days as paradise. Where the king or where Nero lived was known as heaven. So when Jesus was talking, he was using terminology that everyone understood clearly in an Eastern mentality. Um, and we don't today, and this leads to all kinds of confusion, and it is not helpful. The earth is considered to be the first heaven, and you know what? When you walk out of here in Glasgow on a beautiful day, you know that one beautiful day we get every year? <laughs> when you walk out in Glasgow and you look at the sky, it is like a heaven sometimes. Absolutely glorious what God has created. The second heaven is the stratosphere, and this is where Scripture tells us he's the prince and the power of the air. So up there is where the angels war, and you can have multiple examples of that within Scripture. So the question that many of you repeatedly ask me, and I've answered it before, but I understand that it's, it is complicated. When a Christian dies, let's say I die. Jesus' body did not see decay because Jesus had never sinned in the body. So his body, Hebrews says, behold, his body will not see decay. It didn't rot. Right? But I am a sinner. And inside this body is a rotten person. Everybody say, ah. Oh. Inside this body is, is actually a rotten person. And because of that, when I die, my body will rot. Because I have sinned in my body. So my body will rot. When I die, my body will go into the earth. My spirit and soul, remember there are phases. Once my spirit was dead, then it became alive. 
once this soul was the only thing I had because my spirit was dead. But once I'm dead as a Christian, my soul and spirit, really, they're one from that point on. Because that phase is over. It's over. And God is creating me. He's making me. I'm growing in more into his image, if you like. He's made man in his image. He, I know he's triune. And we are, to some degree, body, soul, and spirit. But how liberating is that? How beautiful is that? Do you understand? Do you know the amount of trouble your soul causes you? Your worries and your anxieties, the stresses and the strains of an unruly, unsanctified soul. The soul is the mind and the will and the emotions. And how beautiful the day will be, hallelujah, when God takes that soul and I die and my body goes into the ground and he takes my spirit, born again spirit, and that part of me, I become one. Hallelujah. It's a new day. It's a new beginning. And we're moving towards eternity. My body will stay in the ground until, until the last trumpet when the dead will rise. And they will meet the Lord in the air. Okay? And we will be reclothed. We will receive eternal bodies. The sad thing is, this is great news for us. It's not great news for the lost, you know. Do you know that every person who's ever lived, lost or saved, is going to be raised from the dead? They will all be raised. Every person, lost and saved, is going to receive a new body. Those bodies will not be capable of death. Okay? So can you imagine being lost and you're in the ground and God raises you, you're reclothed in an imperishable body and then you stand before Jesus Christ and then you're sent to hell. Good Lord. You would wish that you could die, you understand. Jesus said exactly that. He said the day will come when men will wish that they would rather be dead. They would rather be dead because they cannot die. It's an eternal punishing as well as an eternal punishment. It's a conscious reality. So when a dead person dies, their body goes into the earth just like yours, except they go to a place which goes by various names in Scripture, but it's a bit like our legal system. Peter refers to it a bit like remand. When you commit a crime in this nation, do they send you to prison? No, they send you to somewhere completely different. They send you to a place called jail. And a jail is a temporary holding place until judgment. And then once a person is judged, then they go to prison. So Peter uses this same analogy in terms of when a lost person dies, they go on remand, their soul, spirit, same thing, they're held there until judgment day when they too will be raised and appear before Jesus Christ. For every single person will appear before Christ. Now the Old Testament saints, this is a very common question. What happened then? Well, Scripture makes this again clear, thank God. When an Old Testament believer, remember the cross stands in the middle of history, and Old Testament saints looked forward to a Messiah and we look back to the cross but it's the same saving Jesus it's the same cross so when Abraham and all the others when they died they went to a place called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side 
where they remained until Christ was, was crucified. And scripture says that he descended, remember? Says he descended into hell, where he explained or preached the gospel. And when he rose from the dead, he emptied those Old Testament saints and he brought them to where? Paradise. Because we're not talking about heaven yet. Okay, I know this is complicated, but stick with me. Get the podcast, get the CD, and work yourself through because there's a reason why Scripture tells you all this. Because you're supposed to know it. There's a reason why this is in Scripture. So that, for me, is a very clear understanding of life, death, the afterlife. And you will often hear people talk about, you know, going to heaven and, and going to hell. But those terms are in, incredibly inaccurate, actually, because heaven is coming here, you know. Heaven is coming to earth. It's described as a new Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens that God sends to earth. On the street, when we're preaching on the street and you're sharing the gospel, very often someone will shout up to you. In fact, this is one of the most common things they say. Hey, I'm going to hell. Yes. And they mock you and they laugh at you. You say, hey, I'm going to hell with all my friends. And we're going to have a great time. Right, Gordon? <laughs> People love to shout that at you on the street. If only they would allow you to answer the question because they're not right. And I would love to say someday, if one person would give me the chance, Sir, when you die, your body will go into the ground. And your soul and your dead spirit will be held on remand for at least a thousand years. So you're not going anywhere just yet. We have a millennium to get through. We have a thousand years of the rule of Jesus Christ on the earth to get through yet. So you're going to be held in a conscious state on remand for at least a thousand years. Then you will be raised and given a new body. Then you will appear before Jesus Christ. And then you will go to hell. One of the problems we have is a very rapid, fast attitude to these things. And that is just not scriptural. Just not scriptural. D let me show you a few of these points because you'll be looking for scriptures. Luke chapter 16, verse 22 the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to where? Abraham's bosom, referenced by Jesus himself. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Jesus turns to the thief on the cross and he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. He could have said heaven, but he didn't say heaven. And the reason he didn't say heaven is because heaven is coming here. Now, one of, one of the sorry facts of scripture, folks, is this. Scripture never once speaks of anybody going to hell. You know that. What it speaks of is people being thrown into hell, not going. And that is a very good image for me, very pertinent image for me, because when I was a child, I was very happy at home, and I didn't start school till I was about five and a half. I was late, and I did not want to go to school. And I was big for my age, and one of my older brothers took me, even though he was much he couldn't handle me. And I had made the decision, I am not going into that school. And I managed to get one leg jammed on one side of the door, other leg jammed on the other, and try as he may, I am not going to school. And he had to get one of the teachers out, and they opened the door, and they took me, and they, yeah, they threw me in, slammed the door, and my brother ran away. Yeah. 
So no one in scripture, you see, goes to hell. If you're taking notes, Luke chapter 12, verse 5, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, they both speak of being thrown into hell. And as I say, heaven is actually coming to earth. The thing that God set out to achieve in the Garden of Eden was a community, a a people that were his own, a people that were dedicated to him. Is God going to have his goal? Is God going to have his goal? Yes, God's going to have his goal right here on earth. Okay, a new heavens and a new earth. And in, in some weeks' time, and maybe in the evening, we'll go through the whole sequence of things, the order of events, because it is, it, as I say, it's clearly spelled out in Scripture for a reason. Mark chapter 9, verse 48, verse 48 or 47. Look at this. This is Jesus once again making a reference to hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be what? (laughs) Thrown into hell where the worms never die and the fire never goes out. I I grew up in Belfast in the middle of a war zone and there were very frequently bombs that would go off. And you could be in town, you could be in school, you could be in the park and you will suddenly hear boom. And it is a horrible Horrible, horrible feeling when you hear a bomb going off or you hear bullets being fired. Now, I can tell you from personal experience, folks, one thing comes into your mind when you were, even as a child, when those bombs would explode in our city, the first thought every time is what? Where is my family? Where is, what time is it? Where's my mother? Where's my father? Where's Mary and Anne? And And you instantly just place everyone in the city and you try and locate the general area that that blast came from. Thank God there was only once that one of my sisters was actually in a building that got bombed, but God saved her. She sat in an alcove and the bomb blasted the people that way and she only had her eardrums burst. But when it comes to talking about hell, you see folks, The bulk of the warnings in Scripture come from who? From Jesus Christ, who wants to try and inform you, to help you, like a good physician. He tries to tell you and warn you to, above all, at all costs, at any price, avoid hell. At all costs, at any price, avoid hell. Because it is a real place where the worm never dies, And the smoke never ceases to rise. Next slide, please. He used this term for a very good reason. He was, once again, he was preaching those messages there in Jerusalem. This is the outside wall of Jerusalem. And this area here is known as the Valley of Hinnon. And this was historically, not today because of all the technology with waste disposal, but in the days of Jesus Christ, the Valley of Hinnon, also known as Gehenna, okay, was the valley of fire. And the people of Jerusalem would all have to get their rubbish and the rubbish would be dumped right down in this valley. Now, after a while, as you can imagine, the rubbish would pile up. They would throw rotten food here and the maggots would eat the food, as they do. And this was a place where the, the rubbish got so great that people had the responsibility of setting it on fire regularly to keep the mass down. This was Gehenna, 
the valley of Hinnom. And Jesus is in the city and he's preaching. Uh, and you know, the Greek is very expressive. He's crying out with all his heart, do not go to Gehenna. Do not end up in Gehenna where the worm never dies because the maggots ate the rubbish and the smoke never ceases to rise because it didn't. He was giving them an example from their lives that they would understand. A passionate cry for them not to go there. Amazing, isn't it? So many parallels here, you know. Did Jesus end up here? Every person who was crucified, they, part of the punishment of being crucified was you were not allowed to be buried. You had to be put where? Right here. In the Valley of Hinnon, in Gehenna. That was your destination. So this place had human bodies. All those who were crucified were dumped, not buried. But in the case of Jesus, a man called Joseph of Arimathea went to him and interceded for him and said, please do not put his body for decay, but give me his body. And if you remember, that was granted. And Joseph of Arimathea became one of the most favored people. Ah, yo. Jesus. Jesus. Imagine being given the body of Jesus. Good Lord. Imagine being given the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea became one of the most favored people of all history to be entrusted with the body of Jesus Christ and to put it in a tomb. So, Jesus did not end up here. Who did? Judas. And Scripture says that after Judas betrayed Jesus, he was vexed within his spirit so greatly that he went out onto this clifftop and he threw a rope around a tree and the branch broke and Judas ended up down in the valley of Hinnom. This has many parallels in Scripture. Mordecai and Haman, remember? Building the gallows, a gallows that he hung in himself. This was an Old Testament picture of what was going to happen right here. So, folks, it couldn't be more serious. It's a very serious message, you understand. These are serious times, and you need to take your salvation very, very seriously. Next slide, please. Just in answer to some of your general questions that I've had over the last few weeks. These are some biblical realities that may interest you and may clear up some confusion in your mind. Not all sin is the same. And thus, not all punishment is the same. I don't understand why on earth so many pastors preach messages saying all sin is the same. I know all sin is sin. That's a different point. All sin is sin. And only one sin is enough to get you into hell. No problem. I understand that. But not all sin is the same. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear. He says that no sin is like, God help us, no sin is like sexual sin. There is no sin on earth like sexual sin because you take the temple in which God has put his spirit and you combine it with another. This is the greatest sin, Paul said. The greatest sin is unbelief. Talking about sin generally. Okay? So not all sin is the same and thus not all punishment will be the same. Okay? Point two, there will be degrees in both heaven and hell. Remember, Jesus said one day, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah, more bearable. So there were degrees of suffering in hell 
likewise there will be degrees of reward and authority and blessing in heaven. Number three, heaven and hell are both being prepared. They're both future places. There's actually no one as such in heaven today. It's, it's paradise that people go to when they die. There's no one in hell today, not the final hell. They're on remand. That is something that is yet to happen. And again, that whole chronology is spelled out in the book of Revelation. It's described as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is something I hope you never have to experience, but I experienced it once as I was a youth in Belfast, seeing what gnashing of teeth looks like. It is not a good experience to witness that, and I experienced it once in this very building. Fear has many manifestations. The human body goes into various you know, routines once fear kicks in. But gnashing of teeth is quite unique because Jesus said that on judgment day, at the end, there will be weeping and... Yeah. Gnashing of teeth is a very unique phenomenon, really, within a human being's body. I'm sorry to say that about five years ago, one of our members here, a casual member unfortunately had some psychiatric problems and killed both his children. He murdered them and he tried to kill himself but he did not die and he's currently in prison here in Scotland. I was in this building on the morning that that was discovered and that man's mother, who some of you know, came to this building when she found out what had happened, that both her grandchildren were murdered by her son. And I was in here, because we come in early to pray, and I just said, when all of a sudden, I thought, I thought, oh, trouble, trouble. I ran down there. I thought, that's not trouble. That's a woman. What? And I opened the door, and there was that man's mother. And she came in, and she sat down at the front door. And guess what she was doing? Gnashing, gnashing, gnashing constant gnashing of teeth and I didn't know what to do I just got my phone I rang Sheila who could speak the same language and was a friend of her I said get down here get down here now I just looked at this woman and I thought something is terribly terribly wrong she had heard that her grandchildren were dead there's nothing she could do and she went into like a spasm and that spasm was this why didn't I see the signs why didn't I tell him I knew he was going wrong I knew this wasn't right. She was furious at herself, at what she didn't do. This is gnashing of teeth. This is a description of, of, of hell. Okay? It's a place where people, when they actually receive their new body and they stand there, there's, what did I do? I don't believe that I didn't listen. I can't believe, what did I do that for? You offered me salvation, I didn't take it. And so Jesus passionately cries out to us not to end up in this position. Number five, they are places of continuation. This just, this just puts me in awe. Look at this, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11. This is an awesome, scary scripture, this one. Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. So, we're getting to the end of all things. This is the conclusion of all things. You can imagine Jesus is separated, the sheep from the goats. Everything's over. And then out of the mouth of Jesus comes these terrifying words. 
Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. And let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. I hope you can understand the gravity of that scenario. You can imagine the crowds on that judgment day. And this is the point of Jesus. Those of you who did not receive the grace I offered, not my fault, you rejected the gospel, continue and it will never end. It's a road that will never end. Those of you who chose that road, continue now forever on that road. You'd need to be thrown onto that road, that's for sure. And those of you who received my son, who repented of your sin, now turn to the path of holiness and you will be on that path forever and ever. Isn't that wonderful? Scary, scary, but wonderful. Scripture speaks of two judgments. I I won't go there yet. I'll just finish these off. Um, Oh yeah, number six. Christians face the Bema seat or the seat of rewards. That's the judgment that Paul describes for us. He uses an Olympic term actually. Uh, in, in those days when they had great races and athletes, they used to appear before a seat of rewards, and it's the, the Greek word is bema. But the lost appear in a different judgment, which is called the great white throne judgment. So there are two separate judgments for lost and saved. Number, number seven, both heaven and hell are eternal places. This is a, a, a false doctrine that Gordon asked me a question this week about this. He was saying, you know, some people say that when people die, they, they no longer exist. And that was a popular false doctrine about 10 years or more ago. It's not true. Every person will exist forever. You are eternal. Whether you accept that or not, you are. You will find that out one day. You will exist forever either in light or in darkness, either in heaven or in hell. But you will exist forever, friend. Okay? Makes it all the more serious. And lastly, most of the warnings given by Jesus to avoid hell were actually given to believers, and that's because of his great love for you and for me and for humanity. With all this said, you've got to ask yourself, what on earth is it about modern-day you know, witnessing, evangelism, and preaching that we don't see the salvation that we should? What is it about you? Everybody look at me. This is very important. What is it about you that when you tell them about Jesus that they don't respond? What is it that is lacking in you? Well, I would draw your attention to Wesley, Owen, Richard Roberts. I would draw your attention to the men in history who saw gazillions of people saved. What was different in them and us? What was different? They feared hell. For for themselves. Like Paul. Paul said, with fear and trembling, with fear and trembling, I I, I look towards achieving this goal. Not that I already have it. That's the difference. And the men of history who actually had an impact were those who feared hell for themselves. You know, a few years ago, I went out the back door. I was heading into town, and I went through Chinatown. And some of you will know it at the back here. And I went under the. I was heading to the underpass. You know that, folks. I, I was just taking a shortcut into the city, and I was about two or three hundred yards away from the underpass, walking along happily. When out of that underpass came a man, and he was running. 
for his life. He wasn't jogging. This guy was going at the fastest pace that he could possibly run towards me. Now, what do you think I did? I started to run in the same direction as the man. I looked at him and I thought, whatever that is, I'm going to do that. I took off. I don't know what I'm running from. And I ran. In fact, the red block of flats there, he went one way. I went the other. I saw him and I ran over towards him and I was out of breath. What, 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 what? And I looked back. Yep, there they are. Five young lads trying to mug him. You see? And he was furious and he started telling me, they're, trying, they're just trying to go into town. They're trying to mug me. I said, okay, praise God, we got away, huh? He didn't tell me anything. Just one look at him made me turn. He knows something I don't know. He knows something. He's responding to something. Do you know, folks, you get the point, don't you? We live in a generation that has become so overly assured of their salvation that it's not working in anybody's favor. It's to some degree delusional that we're so confident. And Paul was not. That's all I'll say to you. Paul was not. Paul said, with fear and trembling, I work at this. But that is not what we see today. And my point is that the, the, the great men of history, when we see the, 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 the thousands turn to Christ, I want you to understand something. It's because they saw a fear in them. They saw a living reality. They thought, whatever that is, I'm going to obey that. I may not understand it yet, but I'm going to take off and follow that road because this is dangerous. That's what's lacking, folks. It's one of the things, not the only thing. But that's what's lacking. I can send you these PowerPoints. I know there's a lot of stuff there today. It's, let me just get it out, throw out the, the, the bulk of the, the information, and then maybe on Sunday evenings we can digest it. But let me stretch you just one little bit further, right? Because I, I fear, I, I don't like so much of what I hear when people question God or they question Scripture. You're not God. <laughs> he is God. And, and it scares me when I hear people question Him or treat Him like He's you know, e equal in some way to them. Maybe I'll believe that. Maybe I won't. Easy does it, guys. Not a good perspective. And I want you to consider... Uh, let, let me put this in human terms. I want you to consider how difficult it would be for God to communicate anything to you. It's like you trying to talk to an ant. How, how are you going to communicate? How are you going to tell you know, the ant anything? Billy Graham used that example. He said it's like there was a whole load of ants and they were moving towards a cliff and God wanted to stop them. So one day he became an ant, if you like. And he went down and said, stop! And it's a bit like that with humanity. But people will still question heaven. They'll question hell. And they'll say, well, I don't know why hell exists. I don't think I believe in hell. I choose not to believe in hell. How ridiculous is that? Just as I choose to believe that you don't exist. Are you here? <laughs> Give us a noise. <laughs> it doesn't change anything, does it? It doesn't change anything. He's still here. And you, can, you think you choose, but it doesn't alter reality. But I want you to consider something for a moment. How, how difficult it is for God to communicate these things in a way that all generations and all of us here can understand. That's not easy. I fear that we have lost the awe of God 
who is beyond the beyond. He's huge, ever-living, almighty, all-powerful, and all-consuming fire. It's not a joke. He's God, the Creator God. And we have lost our perception of that and almost demanding Him to explain Himself like Job did. And God rebuked Job and said, Now you will answer me. And Who are you to ask me? Remember chapter 38, I think it is, of Job? Where God rebuked Job. He was almost saying, Have you any idea how difficult it is to communicate heaven, hell, the cross, life, death to human beings? Because He is beyond what you are or I am. Amen. He is beyond you. He is greater than you. Let me give you a, a little illustration to describe that. This is my friend. He's called Mr. Flat because he's totally flat. Okay? He only has two dimensions. He has width and he has breadth. Sorry, he has height and he has breadth, but he has no width. He is totally and utterly flat. He's two-dimensional. You are three-dimensional, correct? Okay, next slide, please. There's a great problem. Next slide, please. There's a great problem here. Because I'm three-dimensional, if I want to talk to him and I enter a two-dimensional world, let's say I stick my finger in Mr. Flat. Look, boom. What does he see? He's two-dimensional. What does he see? He sees a, a disc. He sees a disc, that's all. If I, here's Mr. Two-Dimensional, Mr. Flat. I'm three-dimensional. I'm outside of his ken, outside his ability to perceive. Are you with me? And I stick my finger into his world. He can't perceive in a three-dimensional way. So all he actually sees would be a disc, a circle, and that's all he can understand. And yet, here I am. You follow the illustration. Because God is beyond the beyond. Einstein became very famous because he discovered this thing we now call space-time. He discovered that time was a fourth dimension that was actually a physical property, right? A property that could be, you know, like elastic. It could be contracted and extended and stretched. And, and this is very similar, folks. Because you need to give God a break. And stop demanding him to answer you questions like Job did. And let God be God. Let him be the awesome God that he is. Next slide, please. This is a famous painting of Salvador Dali. Where is this hanging? This is, painting has been hanging in, 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 in Kelvin Grove Art Gallery for many years. It's a fantastic painting, but it's very underappreciated because Dali is not famous because he was a... A great artist, he certainly is. But Dali's whole point was how does a omnidimensional God, if you like, communicate into a 3D world? Give God a break. Next slide, please. This is one of his most famous paintings. It's called St. John at the Cross. And some of you do physics, but this cube here is called a Hinton cube in the realm of theoretical physics. It doesn't exist. And Dali was trying to... You see, a Hinton cube is man's attempt at describing what a four-dimensional object would look to you. Okay? 
This man's attempted doing that. Now, Dali took this, a representation from outside of our world, beyond our understanding. He took the Hinton cube, and who did he crucify to it? Jesus Christ. And in the painting, his point is, I believe, don't you understand how difficult it is for an omnipresent, ever-living, almighty God to come all the way down and try and speak to you? And yet you question him? You dare to question him? Do you understand me, folks? You need to let God be the awesome God he is and appreciate the fact that he actually did break through into our world in, in Jesus Christ and be thankful for it. Let God be God. Next slide, please. Oh, Lord, it's getting worse, isn't it? not rocket science that was a joke could someone could someone interpret this for me could someone give me four english words for this please someone give me four english words anybody nobody okay next slide please you see this is the 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 equation for the distribution of light now my point is in genesis chapter one and verse 3, it says this, And God said, Let there be light. Okay? Now, which one do you want? Do you want, do you want it in English? Or do you want a heap of textbooks? You can have it either way. The Apostle John said this, If you really wanted to know, the whole world would not be able to contain the books that would be written if you really want it that way. Do you understand? He said, if you really want to go down the road of questioning God, if you really want to try and be God you know, yourself and say, I'll teach you God, you can go as complicated or as easy as you like. I'm saying this because I want you to get some understanding that to get down off high horses here, folks, and let God be God. I want to honor Scripture. The Bible says an amazing thing about the book says this, Jesus says, I have exalted my word above my name. And for me, that's enough, Lord. I accept it. I believe it. I will live by it. I'll not question it. You're not accountable to me. I am accountable to you. Okay? Hell is a real place. So real that our eternal God, the Son of God, stepped down from glory, took on a human body, and died on a cross so that you wouldn't have to go there. That's serious. That's really, really serious. Someone once said this. They said, what's the most horrible 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 thing that could ever happen a human being what is it to go to hell and what's the most unthinkable thing unthinkable thing that could ever happen god that he would have to send his son and hand him over to you this is unthinkable a holy god in the hands of sinners and that's what happened. 
because it's that serious that God the Father sent his son to redeem you and redeem me. This is, I know this is serious stuff. Serious days, folks. Serious days. Let me repeat what I said at the beginning. You can go out of this building. You may never hear another message on hell. Is that true? It's absolutely true. And that is a deception. So I am happy to send you those PowerPoints. And in a few weeks' time, maybe we'll meet on Sunday nights and do some Bible study, actually, round in a circle here where we can dig out these scriptures and answer one-to-one -one any questions that you may have. When you go out there, preach the whole gospel. Do it with love and do it with kindness and with grace. But preach the whole gospel and don't be ashamed of it or afraid of it because that's what set, sets people free, folks. That's what sets you free. Now set other people free.